as I said, our last speaker uh, for today uh, is uh, Professor Casey Johnson, uh, who is a history professor at Brooklyn College uh, and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Um, Professor Johnson had, holds his BA from uh, Harvard, uh, his uh, master's from Chicago, and his PhD from Harvard. Uh, he's held a series of, of, of teaching and faculty appointments, um, uh, but he is uh, perhaps um, best known of all uh, for um, his uh, work on the internet of, a variety of, 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 on a variety of subjects. Um, most recently, uh, his, his blog, Durham and Wonderland, and a book that he co-authored with Stuart Taylor, uh, until proven innocent political correctness and the shameful injustice of the Duke lacrosse case. Um, it's an excellent book, uh, and I commend it to all of you. Um, and uh, uh, Professor Johnson was good enough to, uh, after, after writing this book, Professor Johnson uh, proceeded to flee the country to Israel, um, but uh, he uh, was good enough to, 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 to fly back to talk to us a little bit about um, the, the Duke lacrosse case and the, and the academy. Professor um, Johnson. Thank you very, thank you very much for the kind words. Thank you all for uh, for coming. I, I realize that the the last talk of the day can sometimes be a small crowd, so I'm very much appreciative uh, uh, of your attendance. Uh, in some ways, the, the Duke lacrosse case was a, a very simple story. Uh, it was the story of, of a woman named Crystal Mangum, uh, who not only gave a number of contradictory uh, stories, but in fact never t told anything close to the same story twice in her interviews with uh, law enforcement. At various points in the case, uh, she claimed that zero, uh, two, three, four, five, and 20 people uh, raped her. Uh, her final story was that the rape occurred while she was levitating uh, in the uh, captain's uh, bathroom. Uh, some stories uh, claimed that there was no physical assault uh, beyond uh, the rape. Uh, in other stories, she claimed that she was uh, uh, beaten on the head on the sink during the attack. Uh, in other stories, she said that she was assaulted physically by 10 other uh, lacrosse players. Uh, which left a grand total of an injury of a non-bleeding uh, scratch on her knee. Uh, and in uh, her treatment of the second dancer in some stories, the second dancer was an accomplice to the rape. Uh, in other stories, uh, there, there, she was a neutral witness. And then still in other stories, uh, she was a fellow victim, uh, having been raped by three additional and never revealed uh, lacrosse players. Uh, so if you were attempting to imagine a non-credible witness, you would have, it would have been harder to come up with, with someone uh, less credible than Mangum. Uh, and then the district attorney, or the former district attorney, Mr. Nifong, uh, down 17 points in the polls uh, six weeks before a primary that was about to uh, lead to his defeat, uh, then proceeded to uh, attempt, in retrospect, uh, to violate as many procedures as he possibly could in, in one case, uh, beginning by making a series of, of inflammatory public statements that would have been unethical even if they were true, they were false, uh, followed by ordering the police to run a third lineup after the first two lineups didn't produce the desired result, but making sure that the police only showed Mangum suspects in this third uh, lineup, refusing to meet with defense attorneys who said and actually did possess uh, evidence of, of absolute innocence of their clients, 
meeting with the lab director and coming up with an agreement uh, to withhold uh, for the lab director to withhold exculpatory uh, evidence in his uh, report, uh, namely that uh, there were uh, DNA of between four and nine males uh, on uh, Mangum's uh, rape kit, unidentified, uh, not uh, lacrosse players. Uh, and then finally lying to not one but two judges uh, about the content of his conversations with uh, uh, this uh, lab director. So, again, if, if one would assume that uh, an environment of people who are concerned with false accusations uh, and uh, prosecutors uh, running amok with false accusations would be the contemporary academy. And so in a normal circumstance, you would have assumed that this would have generated uh, tremendous outrage uh, from the faculty at, uh, at Duke. Uh, as we all know, this did not occur. Well, it did generate a tremendous outrage, but it generated tremendous outrage uh, on uh, Nifong's behalf, producing what appears at least to have been a first uh, in American history, uh, a situation in which the statements and actions of their own professors uh, were cited as one of the major reasons uh, why college students could not receive a fair trial in the local uh, jurisdiction, uh, a fact for which uh, Duke... Uh, one would think would be ashamed, but there is no evidence uh, uh, that they are. Uh, my talk today is going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the academic aspects of the case, um, but I'd be happy to take questions about uh, uh, the other aspects of the case as well over the course of the blog and the book. Um, I did develop a, a fairly good working relationship um, with, uh, with the members of, of the defense uh, side. Um, th there are, I think, three reasons why this case uh, is important for all of us who are concerned about the, the nature of the academy beyond the simple human factor of an instance where you had college students who were targeted deliberately because they were college students. This, this was the fact that they were students that made them politically useful uh, for Nifong um, and then saw their own professors uh, uh, betray them, uh, you know, a human story, which is really uh, unfortunate. The first was an almost gleeful willingness um, to abandon what we think of as, as the Academy's uh, uh, willingness to uphold due process. Um, certainly, if you read statements of uh, the American Association of University professors uh, since the McCarthy era, we hear constant references that it's a special uh, uh, element of, of academic affairs to stand up for uh, uh, procedural regularity. This was not done, uh, and instead the, the vocal element of the Duke faculty uh, decided that they would use the lacrosse case uh, to advance their own personal agendas or curricular agendas uh, or uh, transformational agendas uh, for uh, the university. In retrospect, they picked the wrong case to exploit, but at the time it seemed like a relatively uh, safe bet. The, the highest profile example of this was an ad uh, which was uh, published on April 6th uh, of last year. Uh, it was rushed into production. It was funded by the African-American Studies Program. It came out of the Duke budget. Uh, this violated uh, uh, Duke procedures. Um, the author of the ad, Wanima Lubiana, was quite clear that she wanted the ad out quickly. There was a fear that the DNA test, the first round of DNA test, which Nifong had publicly promised would identify the guilty but also exonerate the innocent, there was a fear that these results might come back. The lacrosse uh, players' attorneys had promised that there would be no DNA matches. Uh, there would be no case to exploit, presumably, so the, the African-American Studies program wanted uh, uh, the ad published. 
Uh, it was published uh, in the Duke Chronicle, the campus newspaper, uh, but was then also hosted for 123 days uh, on the uh, homepage, uh, departmental homepage of the African American Studies program uh, at Duke, another violation of Duke procedures. The administration never forced them uh, to take it down. Uh, they only took it down after they started getting criticism from uh, extraneous bloggers um, uh, and then uh, tried to sort of remove uh, the evidence. Um, th this ad stated that something, uh, unequivocally stated that something happened uh, uh, to Mangum. Uh, it committed uh, the signatories, 88 of them, uh, to turning up the volume regardless of what the court case uh, described. Uh, it said uh, it uh, gave a thank you uh, to protesters and not just a thank you, but a thank you for not waiting. Uh, the two highest profile protests on campus before the ad came out uh, were uh, a, a protest in front of the lacrosse player's house. Uh, where a group that, that called itself the Pot Bangers because they banged pots and pans uh, carried a huge banner that said castrate. Uh, and then a take back the night uh, march uh, on March 29th, uh, where uh, 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 feminist activists spread around uh, the campus uh, huge wanted posters with the lacrosse players' uh, photographs uh, on them. No Duke professor uh, who signed the statement has ever given a reason why it was so important not just to thank these protesters, but to thank them for not uh, waiting. And finally, the ad claimed in what was a really unprecedented uh, event to have the official endorsement of five academic departments at Duke and 10 uh, academic programs. It turns out that in the case of at least the five academic departments, none of these departments ever voted uh, on whether or not uh, to endorse uh, the ad. Uh, and there was not a majority of any of the five departments that allegedly endorsed the ad that actually uh, uh, supported it. Um, around a year later, the provost of Duke, Peter Lang, sent around a missive conceding that procedures had not been followed. And in fact, none of these departments did actually endorse uh, the ad. Uh, some of the group members, uh, group of 88 members, went even further. Uh, a professor of, of, of English, uh, Houston Baker, uh, around two weeks after the case first broke, uh, issued a public letter demanding the immediate expulsion of at least 46 of the lacrosse players. There was one African-American lacrosse player. Baker was never quite clear on whether he, too, should be expelled or, uh, or not. But the reading of his letter suggested that he, too, had to be uh, uh, expelled. Uh, the former dean of uh, the uh, Duke faculty, William Chafe, uh, spent 11 years as the faculty, uh, a distinguished historian of the civil rights movement in the United States, uh, published uh, an, an op-ed in the Duke Chronicle, again before there were any indictments, uh, asserting that the behavior of the whites uh, uh, in Mississippi, who uh, kidnapped, uh, beat, and murdered Emmett Till, uh, provided the appropriate historical context uh, through which to interpret the behavior of the Duke lacrosse team. Uh, and in an unintentional uh, commentary of the intellectual seriousness of, of Chafe's efforts, this leading historian of the American civil rights movement misidentified the year of Till's uh, murder. Uh, and several Duke professors uh, chose to use class time uh, to comment on the guilt of their own students, including a history professor named Reeve Houston, uh, who on March the 27th, that was three days after the case first attracted any publicity, uh, set aside his scheduled lecture and announced that he was going to share with his class the subjects of his research, uh, which had told him that not only had a rape occurred, but that there was an ejaculation in the rape. Uh, Houston has never said what research he did between uh, March the 24th and the 27th that uh, determined this information. 
Um, who were these faculty, this, this group of 88? This was not a random cross-sampling of the Duke uh, campus. Uh, 80% of the, of the professors in the African-American Studies Department signed the statement. 72.3% of the professors in the Women's Studies Program signed the statement. 60% of the professors in the Cultural Anthropology Program uh, uh, signed the statement. Large numbers of history, English, and literature professors signed the statement. Uh, there was only one law professor who signed the statement, and she did not have a, a, a full-time appointment in the law school, and only three math or science professors who signed the statement. So a statement that skewed towards the humanities, and especially towards humanities at Duke, that over the last 15 years had been extremely aggressive at implementing uh, what uh, the, the administration termed a, a diversity program of, of hiring. Uh, 85% of the signatories to the statement described their research interests as race, class, or gender, and in some cases, all three. Um, and in some cases, uh, in what would be a kind of caricature of, uh, of tenured radicals on contemporary campuses. Uh, the author of the statement was this literature professor named Wanima Lubiano. Uh, in February of 2007, she gave an interview stating in, in what was the, the Pauline Kael uh, moment of the Duke lacrosse case, uh, saying, and I'm quoting here, in the moment when the ad came out, I did not hear from even one colleague that there was something wrong uh, with the ad. Lubiana was an interesting figure. She had received uh, a tenure at uh, Duke in 1997 on the basis of, of two books uh, that were listed as forthcoming, one from NYU Press, one from Verso Press. Uh, in the year 2008, uh, neither of those books have appeared, uh, and the websites of both presses give no indication that the books are going to appear anytime soon. Uh, another group signatory was a literature professor named Grant uh, Fared, uh, whose most recent publication uh, had been a book that described uh, Houston Rocket Center Yao Ming as the greatest threat uh, that currently exists to the American empire, something that undoubtedly made Osama bin Laden feel very nice. Uh, Fared was recently hired and promoted uh, to full professor uh, by Cornell, uh, and uh, the head of the uh, Cornell English Department a woman named Molly Height, whose most recent book was called Class Porn, uh, announced that the entire department had always thought very highly of her scholarship. Uh, and uh, a women's studies professor, a signatory to the statement named Kathy Rudy, um, published an essay in the early 90s uh, saying that she had initially entered uh, higher education because, because it gave her an opportunity uh, to explore, and I'm quoting here, the idea that women were superior and that a new world could be built on that superiority. Rudy is now uh, working on a critique of animal rights from what she calls the speciesist uh, perspective, which is a claim that animal rights activists discriminate against animals by prioritizing humans over animals. It's a critique of animal rights from the far left, which is not easy uh, to do. Uh, so this was effectively a, a group of, uh, of people who, whose ideas were, were quite extreme, and oftentimes the criticism of the academy is that uh, professors bring their politics into the classroom. What we really saw at Duke was people, uh, professors who brought their, their pedagogies into the political uh, arena. It was really quite the reverse. Uh, secondly, in terms of the academic uh, uh, experience and, and broader lessons, is that you know, we like to think of professors as, as, as endorsing the, the, the dispassionate evaluation of evidence and at least being open uh, to facts. What was striking about the Duke lacrosse case in terms of, of the behavior of, of the Duke faculty was the utter closed-mindedness uh, of the faculty who had rushed uh, to uh, judgment 
and indeed to the, the uh, good portion of, of the Duke faculty who did not, that, that uh, increasingly uh, defended them, and, and to the Duke administration. Um, even as, as Nightbong's case collapsed, and it, it was beginning to collapse as early as May of 2006, and it was quite clearly collapsing by last uh, uh, fall, um, the, the faculty activists who had gone after the lacrosse players maintained that uh, they had uh, performed correctly. Uh, a history professor named Peter Wood gave an interview uh, to uh, The New Yorker uh, last summer uh, stating that lacrosse players in his class had advocated genocide against uh, Native Americans. His evidence for this, one student uh, in one of his classes had given an anonymous student evaluation, as occurs at the end of any term, uh, and given a joking reference uh, to genocide against uh, the Indians. There were 10 lacrosse players in this class. There were also 55 non-lacrosse players. Wood gave no reason to believe that uh, this statement came from a lacrosse player. In fact, it, I found out that it did not come uh, from a lacrosse uh, player. Grant Fared, uh, the same guy who now has moved to Cornell, uh, gave, uh, uh, published an op-ed, the last public statement of any Duke professor before the November election uh, in Durham, which Nifong won, accusing uh, hundreds of Duke students of what he called secret racism. Their offense, they uh, had the temerity to register to vote in Durham. Uh, an, an act that uh, Fared argued uh, suggested a disregard for black women's bodies and an endorsement of what he termed the arrogant sexual prowess of the men's lacrosse team. This voter registration uh, drive was organized by four female uh, Duke undergraduates. Fared never quite explained how this was, uh, was so. Uh, in January of 2007, uh, African-American studies and English and law professor uh, Carla Holloway uh, released what turned out to be fifth-hand uh, unsubstantiated gossip that there was a secret witness in the lacrosse case that would show that there were racial slurs at the party throughout, which was one of the key areas of uh, dispute. Uh, roughly, what, a year later, uh, this secret witness remained secret, and I suspect the secret witness will remain secret for the rest of Carla Holloway's uh, life. Uh, and then there was a kind of Orwellian attempt to uh, uh, rework uh, the past um, that was uh, originated in a January of 2007 op-ed uh, by a, a former Duke Dean and English professor uh, named Kathy Davidson. Davidson admitted in emails that were later forwarded around and, and which, which I obtained that, that part of the reasons, uh, reason for her, her op-ed uh, was that she had consulted a lawyer. And the lawyer had told her that she and the other 87 members of the group could very well be subject uh, to defamation suits from the lacrosse players. Uh, so she publishes this op-ed trying to, to rewrite uh, a history of the spring of 2006. Uh, her claim uh, was that the statement was justified. Uh, this was a statement that occurred, was originated in, in late March and early April of 2006, roughly one week after the Duke lacrosse case first went public in the media. Try to think back what the media attitude was at that time, what the attitude on campus was at that time. Uh, Davidson's contention was that the statement was necessary because during that week period, the only voices that were being heard were the voices of the lacrosse players. Uh, that minority students on the Duke campus were being uh, angrily harassed because they dared to imply that the lacrosse players were guilty. 
Well, it turns out that there was harassment uh, on the Duke campus uh, in the week or so before the, the ad. The people were being harassed were the lacrosse players. Um, one lacrosse player was actually surrounded on, uh, on campus and people screamed at him to confess. Uh, there was the castrate banner. There was the in-class harassment. Meanwhile, African-American students uh, were uh, re- received sort of very uh, favorable treatment from the administration. The president, the provost, the dean of undergraduate education all met with delegations uh, to express their concern and their support uh, for minority students uh, on uh, campus. Davidson was asked uh, to give evidence as to how it was that these uh, uh, that uh, in late March and early April of 2006, it was the lacrosse players' voices who were being heard rather than the uh, voices of their uh, critics. Uh, she, at, at that time, announced that she would no longer be commenting on the lacrosse case um, at the advice of her uh, counsel. Um, and then a few weeks later, in early February of 2007, 89 uh, Duke professors issued yet another statement Uh, That was signed by around 55 of the original group of 88. Many of them had left Duke and a few chose not to sign. And incredibly, 24 professors who had not signed the original statement uh, came together and signed this new uh, statement, which completely reaffirmed the group of 88's uh, statement. This was a statement given in February of 2007. By this point, Nifong had been removed from the case. The state bar had filed ethics charges against him. It was clear to anyone with half a brain that the, this was a, a, a complete fraud. Um, and the, uh, the killer line um, from this, uh, this uh, letter, this was called the clarifying letter, was a statement that, uh, in fact, the signatories to the group of 88 said did not want to thank all protesters. They only wanted to thank protesters who had said that their stated aim of the protest was to combat racial and gender violence. That was the stated aim of the potbangers protest and the wanted uh, protesters. How, 10 months after the fact, uh, these people could be thanked again was really uh, uh, quite, uh, quite astonishing. Uh, even now, um, there's been no indication uh, of any reconsideration on the part of the, uh, of the signatories. The president of Duke, Richard Broadhead, uh, uh, after defending the Group of 88 statement uh, for much of, of 2007, issued a very limited apology uh, in September uh, in which he conceded that there were faculty statements that were, uh, he, he termed it, ill-judged and divisive Uh, But he said that there would be no reason to examine why the faculty had made such statements, that it was more important uh, that everyone move on. Um, And then finally, uh, in terms of the academic uh, uh, side of of the case, what was quite striking and what remains quite striking is the support um, uh, for the Group of 88 and their allies, and to a certain extent from uh, support for for the Duke administration, uh, from other quarters of the academy. Um, this case was described by Lane Williamson, who was the, the uh, chair of the disciplinary panel that disbarred uh, Nifong, as a fiasco, and it's a pretty good uh, description of it. And at the very least, you could argue that one of the good things that came out of the lacrosse case was a reconsideration of prosecutorial misconduct by, I think, many elements within uh, the legal community. 
some journalists, uh, maybe not from the New York Times, but uh, from uh, from other uh, uh, papers, um, have I think reconsidered how they they cover uh, uh, high-profile criminal cases. You could look at the coverage of the Michael Vick case. You know, Vick was, as we all know, turned out to be guilty, but nonetheless, there was a much more restrained attitude, I think, in terms of press coverage uh, as a result of the lacrosse case. And there's been some willingness to, to to ask hard questions on the part of journalists. The American Journalism Review did a, did a very uh, substantial. Uh, piece uh, on the media's uh, mishandling of the case this past summer. There's been almost no such uh, critical uh, self-reflection among uh, uh, higher education, not just at Duke, uh, but elsewhere, as to how it could be that in the highest profile case of prosecutorial misconduct in, what, the last uh, decade at least, um, so many uh, Duke professors could have gotten uh, the case uh, so wrong. Um, Instead, there's really been uh, uh, the reverse. Uh, in the summer of 2006, uh, 15 African-American studies professors, prominent professors uh, from around uh, the country, professors at NYU, uh, at Penn, at Columbia, issued a public uh, letter defending the performance in the case of Houston Baker. Uh, Baker, remember, was the uh, Duke professor who had demanded the immediate expulsion of, of all of the lacrosse players. Um, by this point, he had done a number of other things. Uh, he had emailed uh, one Duke alumnus stating that he had no doubt uh, that even if uh, the uh, rape hadn't occurred in this instance, that lacrosse players had raped black women in other instances. Uh, and he had emailed the uh, mother of a lacrosse player uh, who had criticized him for, for such statements and called her the mother of a farm animal. Um, these 15 African-American studies professors in their public uh, letter uh, praised Baker, uh, uh, def- uh, defended him against his critics, and argued that Duke uh, needed to recognize and the academy needed to recognize that the Duke lacrosse case was a teachable moment. Uh, how was it a teachable moment? Uh, it was a time, and I'm quoting here, to recognize that the academics and departments Uh, that most assiduously impart the best ethical and intellectual wisdom of their disciplines are always race, class, and gender inflected. How you could teach uh, this by the summer of 2006 seemed uh, uh, not clear. Uh, In the immediate aftermath of the exoneration uh, last April, a history professor uh, named Claire Potter, a host of the wonderfully named blog Tenured Radical, a figure of some significance within the historical community, um, uh, gave her uh, reflections on the case. Uh, the villains were, again, the people who had criticized uh, the group of 88. Uh, she denounced, and I'm quoting here, those nitwits down at Duke who have been wearing the innocent bracelets. Of course, the players were innocent by this point. She described the lacrosse team as a, and I'm quoting again, a semi-criminal youth gang. She asserted that the dancers were, were it is clear, physically, if not perhaps sexually assaulted, Uh, And over the last uh, several months, she has refused to provide what proof she had uh, that the dancers were clearly physically uh, assaulted. And she concluded by musing, and I'm quoting again, do we think that women have not been raped at other Duke lacrosse team uh, parties? So this incredible unwillingness uh, to to ask how it is uh, that the the Duke faculty uh, uh, could have gotten this so wrong. And indeed, what's uh, happened in the case is that many of the most outrageous uh, voices uh, uh, from the uh, faculty at Duke uh, have been rewarded. 
Uh, Houston Baker was hired away uh, from Duke by Vanderbilt, uh, which gave him an endowed uh, chair uh, and a year and a half off uh, from teaching. Some could argue that that might be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> Charles Payne, who was the chairman of the African-American Studies Program, who authorized the use of departmental funds uh, for the ad, was hired away by the University of Chicago, again with an endowed chair. Grant Fared was hired away uh, from Duke uh, by Cornell with a tenured full uh, professorship. Um, there's been no suggestion at Duke that the faculty members uh, 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 have, have suffered any consequences. Indeed, one of the uh, group of 88 members uh, who berated lacrosse players in her class in the immediate aftermath uh, of the publication of the case uh, was promoted uh, and named Dean of Social Sciences of the faculty. She has quite unsurprisingly refused uh, to authorize an investigation of faculty in class uh, behavior. Uh, her refusal uh, to authorize this investigation is one reason why it appears Duke might be getting a lawsuit from the 43 unindicted uh, lacrosse players um, who were victimized in, 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 in other sorts of uh, ways. Um, in a lot of ways, the, the lacrosse case was, if you want to bar borrow a term from mathematicians, uh, an existence proof. Um, there's a general sense uh, that uh, the academy, uh, especially the undergraduate academy, uh, has become obsessed with issues of race, class, and gender, uh, has ideas that sort of fall out of the extreme. Um, and we have some superficial examples of this that pop up in the media all the time, the Ward-Churchill case uh, from uh, Colorado. Uh, the Tim Shortell case from my home campus, uh, Brooklyn College. Shortell was the sociology department chairman who was elected uh, after he had written that all religious uh, people were uh, moral retards and that Karl Rove was the American equivalent of Joseph Goebbels. Uh, he was subsequently removed as chair, but only because of protests from the uh, uh, from Brooklyn uh, alumni. But it's very difficult to get a firm sense of, of how pervasive the problem is uh, within the academy. Um, in the Duke case, though, you have what is widely acknowledged to be one of the test, 10 best undergraduate institutions uh, in the country and a faculty that witnessed what was the highest profile case of prosecutorial uh, misconduct uh, in, in recent times. And yet for six months, not one of the nearly 600 uh, members of the arts and sciences faculty publicly criticized uh, Nifong's behavior, publicly criticized uh, the uh, um, group of 88 for a rush to judgment. And when the first one did, a chemistry professor named Steve Baldwin, uh, the next day he was greeted uh, by a letter in the Duke Chronicle accusing him uh, of using the language of lynching. This came from the head of the Women's Studies Program. Uh, and the head of the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity on the campus uh, sent him an email inviting him to come to his office where they could settle their disputes uh, violently. Um, it's very hard to suggest that what occurred uh, at Duke is anything particularly unusual, and I would argue, in fact, that it's, it's not. The only thing that is somewhat unusual about Duke is that Duke implemented a diversity hiring uh, uh, pattern more aggressively than most elite uh, institutions, largely under the leadership of, of, of Chafe and the, the previous Duke uh, uh, president, uh, Nan Kahane. Uh, and you could argue that the, un the undergraduate uh, uh, faculty at Duke today is very similar to what the undergraduate faculty uh, will look like at most elite institutions um, in five or ten years down the road in terms of pedagogical and intellectual uh, interests. 
the Duke administration, uh, headed by Richard Broadhead. Broadhead might be many things, uh, but I don't think you could argue that he is more ex more extreme ideologue than, say, the current presidents of Harvard uh, or Princeton uh, or Penn. So this was not a case where you had an administration uh, that was uh, very much to the left of its faculty uh, dr uh, driving things. I wanted to conclude with a, with a vignette, and then hopefully we can take some uh, uh, questions or, or, or discussions. Um, and it's a story about one of the most moderate uh, members of the group of 88, a history professor named Susan Thorne. Uh, Thorne is a specialist in British uh, and women's uh, history. Um, unlike many members of the group who it's quite clear despised uh, at least a portion of their students uh, who fell on the wrong side of the race, class, gender or athletic status uh, uh, divide, uh, Thorne did not. Um, Thorne had taught many of, uh, of the lacrosse players over the, the previous decade. One of the captains uh, of the lacrosse team, a uh, kid named Danny Flannery. His parents are both CUNY professors, not exactly the image uh, of, a, uh, of an upper-class uh, bastion, um, had looked upon Thorne as his intellectual mentor uh, at Duke. He had taken a couple of courses uh, from her. He had developed a very close uh, relationship with both her and uh, her family. He was stunned when he saw her name uh, on the initial uh, group of 88s uh, at. Um, in the fall, he, this continued to bother him. He had graduated from Duke uh, at that point, uh, and he decided to email Thorne uh, and ask her how it was that she could have signed uh, the ad. And she wrote back in a, a lengthy email exchange uh, that, that went over the course uh, of the fall and admitted uh, that she felt terrible about what she had done. Uh, she recognized that uh, she had rushed to judgment. She apologized uh, to Flannery um, uh, in writing. Um, and she asked what she could do to make it up. And so Flannery asked her, this was before uh, Nifong had uh, been uh, uh, recused himself from the case, uh, had asked her if she would be willing to publish an op-ed in the Durham or the Raleigh newspaper, apologizing for her rush to judgment uh, and urging people to look at the facts of the case uh, dispassionately. And Thorne promised him that, in fact, she would uh, do so. She even wrote up uh, a draft op-ed, which she sent uh, to him. The next that Flannery heard uh, from Susan Thorne was when he saw her signature on the clarifying uh, statement uh, letter, which included uh, the following uh, line. Uh, there have been calls for the signatories to the group of 88 ad, uh, to apologize. We reject all of these calls. Flannery emailed Thorne and asked her, you've said you're going to apologize. You've even given me a draft. How is it that you could possibly not only not apologize, but then sign this statement saying that you were going to refuse to apologize? Um, and Thorne uh, wrote back uh, a quite uh, a cold um, but probably correct uh, assessment. Uh, she said that she had given the matter considerable thought. Uh, and that she had decided that she had no choice but to sign uh, the clarifying statement and not to issue her promised uh, apology, uh, because unless she did so, and this is a direct quote, my voice won't count for much in my world. And it seems to me that it's worth asking, uh, even though people at Duke uh, seem unwilling to do so, um, what kind of academic culture it is that exists on contemporary campus. Uh, campuses uh, in which a, a clearly well-meaning professor, Thorne wanted to do uh, the right thing, uh, could conclude that the, and could correctly conclude, uh, that the only way that she could retain a voice uh, with her colleagues is to publicly betray her students not once, uh, but twice. 
And that, it seems to me, is the most depressing of the lessons of the Duke uh, lacrosse case. And while I doubt very much uh, that we're going to see a prosecutor who is at least as as blatantly dumb uh, in terms of misconduct as Nifong uh, was, um, I fear that we are going to see similar instances of faculty who look upon their students uh, as uh, as the enemy um, and who are willing to betray not only the academy's evaluation uh, support for due process, but like Susan Thorne, willing to even betray their personal relationship uh, with their students in order to advance the, the diversity, acad- uh, diversity approach, uh, which is so uh, much valued on today's uh, uh, college, uh, college campuses. So I'd be happy to take questions or, or comments. Hi, my name is uh, Dan Subonic. I teach at Turo. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, it is statistically uh, highly improbable that the, race, that the rape took place as charged. If you look at um, uh, studies by the Department of Justice, you find no, and I mean no, um, instances. Um, that is to say, of course, you know, it's rounded off, so there's got to be some instances of, uh, black, uh, of white on uh, black rape. So, uh, and that tells you something about the academic culture. Um, uh, I've, uh, I, I published an article, actually, w- which uh, this summer in the University of uh, Southern California Law Review, um, Journal of Law, I don't know, uh, whatever it is. Um, it's called, <laughs> called Hands Off uh, sex, um, uh, sex Feminism, Affirmative Consent, and the Law of Foreplay. And this case, and one at Brown, which you may or may not be familiar with, uh, which I am familiar with, uh, really frame, frame the, home, the whole issue. And I try to tie the, the Duke case uh, to Susan Brown Miller and the whole movement uh, against rape. Uh, not that I'm in favor of rape, but I am in favor of honest discussion, and the discussion, and the discussion has been false from day one. There is, there, there is uh, no rape problem on campus at Duke, uh, although the letter uh, suggests otherwise. Um, uh, the, the ad, that is, suggests otherwise. Um, uh, the, um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, oh, there is a high... Uh, oh, the, the uh, rape problem in America is less than at many, and maybe even most, industrial countries. Uh, that was not the case 15, 20 years ago. Um, and um, let's see, one more thing. Uh, oh, I can't. Um, let's see. All right. And, um, I, I just can't. I got something else I wanted to say. So there, we, there was never a problem uh, to speak of and the slightest, and the first opportunity to use this for political purpose was swallowed whole. Um, I, I've looked at your book and I've read most of it, but, but it's the academic culture part of that that is so fearsome. Uh, the, the, oh, I know what it was now. The, there are data 
showing that there is a much higher rate of false rape reports than any other crime. Uh, not surprising, and yet the official uh, position of, any, uh, of all the women who write in this area is that the false rape rate is 2%, which is apparently the false accusation uh, rate for other crimes. If, if, if there are some fascinating studies here, terrifying fascinating. Uh, one major study, in fact the only major study, by a psychologist at the University of uh, Indiana, he's retired now, showed that 41% of the claims of rape were proved to be false rape. So this is an area in which people are, are, are emotionally invested to the point where they can't, see uh, they can't see straight. And I think you're describing the, the problem that arose as a result thereof. Right. I mean, a, a couple of interesting things, I think, a, 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 about the, the case in, on, on these issues. There was another allegation of, of rape uh, at Duke this past February. Um, it, it involved a, a party at an African-American uh, fraternity. Uh, the allegation was that a black male who attended uh, the party raped a white uh, Duke uh, uh, freshman. Um, there were witnesses uh, to the uh, alleged uh, uh, rape. Uh, there, there was a, an arrest that was ultimately made. Uh, there, the procedures were, were appropriately followed uh, by Duke. There is no record of any uh, Duke uh, professors, even one, um, publicly commenting uh, on this uh, rape. There is uh, um, a, a Duke administrator, uh, Dean of Student Life, Larry Mineta, uh, who did issue a comment. Uh, saying that uh, this, this episode shows the need to learn life's lessons and perhaps uh, the Duke's female student won't put herself in such uh, situations uh, in the future. Uh, it, was, it was absolutely, it was a remarkable uh, uh, statement. Um, on this question of, of you know, the, the alleged rape problem at Duke or, or any place uh, else, um, you know, Duke, the judicial, uh, uh, university judicial uh, uh, board keeps uh, statistics. Um, th this is, there, there's been a lot of controversy about uh, Duke, but you've know, really got universities uh, wide. You know, think of FIRE or Alan Kors and, and Harvey Silverglate's work on this issue. I mean, the university judicial system is a guilt-presuming system where, you know, you're, you're guilty until proven innocent and then maybe even not, uh, not innocent then. Um, and yet the, the statistics suggest that there are almost no reports of sexual uh, assault uh, at Duke within this uh, system. And what was remarkable about these statistics is that this was the only crime where a majority of the cases, uh, the, the person who was charged got off. So even under what was a very flexible interpretation of sexual assault and in a judicial system that is guilt presuming, um, there, there weren't uh, convictions. And you know, I, I did the, the statistics in one blog post. It was something like 0.015% of the Duke students had, uh, you know, and made such, such a claim. So, yes, it's, it's, it's a serious uh, uh, problem. On the, and finally, on the question of, of uh, false rape reports. One figure who has not gotten a lot of attention from uh, the media, she got a good deal of attention in the blog, was, was the same nurse in, in this case, a woman named Tara Levesey, um, who is w one of, and in some ways is a more frightening figure than Nifong. Um, Nifong um, uh, 
in the in the bar hearing, Lane Williamson argued that Nifong was guilty of um, self-deception born out of self-interest. And I think that was an accurate description. Nifong, in his mind, had convinced himself that there was a rape and there was no evidence that could uh, convince him otherwise. Levesey was simply an ideologue. In, in interviews with defense attorneys, uh, she said that she believed women never lied about rape. Uh, and her job in this was, a, was an expert. She had interviewed Mangum on the night of, of March 14th. She simply took Mangum's story. And yet three times over the course of the case, Levesey's version of what Mangum told her on that night dramatically changed. And each time it was changed in such a way to substantiate the prosecution's new and radically altered theory of, of the crime. Uh, Levesey was was subsequently removed from Duke Hospital. It's unclear whether she was fired or voluntarily resigned. She's, she's now in New Hampshire working as a, as a, as a sane nurse. Um, but the, you know, the, the kind of group of, of, of people who, who even in this case could not believe that there was a false claim of, of rape um, from a, either victim's rights standpoint or a sane nurse standpoint is, is really quite frightening, yes. Yes, um, the, the 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 Times coverage of of this this case. You know, I, I should confess I had biases uh, uh, coming in. I, I read the New York Times daily. I, I was under I recognized the criticism of, of the Times, but I assumed that the Times um, was at least factually accurate. Um, uh, and, and would correct errors of, of, of fact. That, that did not happen in, in this case. There were a couple of things that came together, I think, to explain the, the Times coverage, which was wildly slanted and, and frighteningly slanted in Nifong's favor. What, what I think was the most disturbing aspect of, of the slant is that uh, the slant only became apparent the more you knew about the case. Um, and so, you know, for someone like me, I, I was given access to the entire discovery file very early on under the condition that I could not reveal um, anything that was in the, the file. So I knew that the Times was mischaracterizing the, the discovery file in, in their, what was their major story in the summer of, of 2006. It was, it was, it was very disturbing. Um, I think the, the two things that came, came together, the first was the, the decision um, to treat this initially as a sports story. Um, this was not a, it was really not ever a sports story. And if it was a sports story, it was a sports story for around two days. Um, the, the Times primary reporter on the case was a sports reporter uh, named Duff Wilson, um, who well after it was clear that he was at least incompetent and at worst incredibly slanted was not removed uh, uh, from, from the case. The sports columnists, especially Selena Roberts and, and Harvey Ayrton, used this case to presume guilt from, uh, from the start. It fit, it, it fit their, uh, their agendas. As the case went on, um, it, it seemed to me that what occurred was that, that the Times was, was unwilling to admit that it had made a mistake and assumed that there was going to be a trial. Um, so everything, you know, their coverage was sort of built under this assumption, and so bad things would come out about the lacrosse players then that would justify the original uh, uh, coverage. Of course, there wasn't a trial, so the Times got, uh, got stuck. The strangest vignette about the Times coverage came um, the, the day after this August, the August 25th, 2006 story, which is the major Times story. It's a 5,600-word 5, uh, story on page one that stated that there was evidence in the discovery file that justified Nifong's decision to take this case to a jury. That statement 
was disproved by the attorney general who said that there was no uh, such evidence. The day after that uh, um, article appeared, Duff Wilson was the reporter, emailed Brad Bannon, one of the defense uh, attorneys, uh, and, and asked Bannon if he would send him a full copy of the discovery file. Well, that article had stated that Wilson had already thoroughly reviewed the 1,850 pages of the discovery file. And it was perfectly clear that Wilson had not reviewed anything in the discovery file apart from maybe 10 or 15 pages that Nifong had, uh, had handed, uh, handed over to him. And one easy example of this, the, the, the only evidence that was against two of the, the guys, Reed Seligman and Colin Finnerty, was this flawed April 4, 2006 lineup, which was confined uh, to the lacrosse uh, players. Um, in that uh, uh, lineup, Mangum did correctly identify one of the players, uh, Dan Flannery, the captain, as having given her money. Um, he was the person who had paid her. He was the person who had hired her. He was, he was the captain. Um, that was the only correct identification uh, that uh, she made. Uh, she did state in that uh, uh, lineup that she was absolutely certain that she saw this kid named Brad Ross uh, at the party. Uh, he was out in the front porch chatting with the second dancer. Uh, Brad Ross, the evening of the party, was in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, you would think this would have caused uh, uh, doubts. It appears as if Wilson was not given the full transcript that showed which player was identified. The transcript that had been publicly released at this point simply identified the players by uh, numbers, one, two, three, four, five, but it didn't, didn't give a match to each of the numbers. So he assumed that all of Mangum's identifications of the non-suspects, you know, I saw player X drinking in the kitchen, were correct because Nifong told him this and there was this one evidence of a correct identification. So in the article, um, Wilson describes this lineup as, as a remarkable performance by Mangum in her ability to correctly re uh, recollect what she had seen three weeks before. If he had seen the full discovery file, there was just no way he could make that sort of claim. It made absolutely no, uh, no sense. Um, last point on the, on the Wilson article, there were four errors, out and out errors of fact in the Wilson article. All four of these errors of fact slanted the case in Nifong's uh, favor. Um, all four of these errors of fact were brought to the attention of people very high up at the Times, not only by me, but by the defense attorneys. Uh, to date, the Times has refused to run corrections on three of them. And on the fourth, they ran a correction that made it more confusing and only compounded, uh, compounded the error. Well, thanks again, Casey, for all your heroic work on this case. Uh, those of us who followed the case through you really admire and are appreciative of what you've done. Um, my question is about, um, uh, I'm sure you've had an opportunity to give thought to institutional reforms that might address the problems of prosecutorial misconduct. Now, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm a former prosecutor myself, uh, state court criminal prosecutor. I'm very familiar with the faults and foibles of the prosecutor's offices, although I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pro-prosecutor uh, as a cultural matter. Uh, there does seem to be a psychological phenomenon that happens, and I can't explain it, and, and every, not everybody experiences it, but I've witnessed it, uh, where having been committed to a theory of a case, a paradigm, so to speak, in a Kuhnian sense, um, all contradictory evidence is then interpreted away. And I, I'm not exactly sure what it is about the psychology of being an advocate or being a prosecutor in particular leads to this, but I've noticed it in notorious cases in Illinois that I was familiar with after I was a prosecutor. So uh, on the other hand, we have the system we have. We have public prosecutors, which I think by and large, I mean, in this case even shows how 
they are politically accountable, can be made politically accountable. And I'm just wondering what ideas you've come up with um, to uh, that are sort of realistic reforms that could could actually change things in the, for a future case such as this. One of the ironies about this this case is that North Carolina had actually been quite progressive on broad due process reforms. And because they had the, the case, I think, resolved the, the way it did, the, the key figure in this was Beverly Lake, so the conservative Republican, the former chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, become very interested in issues of actual innocence, had, had established an innocence uh, uh, commission. Through his efforts, uh, the state had passed, and I believe there's only one other state that has a, a, a law of this uh, extent, a full open file discovery um, uh, statutes passed in 2004. Um, Without this, without open file discovery, Nifong simply wouldn't have turned over um, the transcript, say, of this uh, of the lineup session. He wouldn't have turned over the underlying DNA uh, uh, data, and he probably would have gotten away with uh, with at least some of what he did. In in the ethics uh, in his ethics trial, he called as one of his witnesses, and one of the strangest things of the, of the trial, the former DA of, of Durham County, who had been there when Nifong started, this guy named Anthony Brannon. Uh, who, and Brandon said that he uh, missed the old days. Um, he said when he was a prosecutor, he preferred actually to withhold as much evidence as he possibly could from the defense. He was very distressed that North Carolina had moved to open file discovery. How this helped Nifong retain his bar license was not entirely uh, clear. So I think one of the lessons of this case is that open file discovery does, in fact, work. Um, and that uh, because of this question of, of, you know, that even prosecutors in very good faith uh, might not be able to identify exculpatory evidence, it's better simply to require um, uh, uh, everything that, that be turned over. The other, I think, major procedural reform um, that, that comes from this case, and again, North Carolina had pretty good procedures. The state legislature actually intervened and mandated this after the lacrosse case, um, is to be much more due process friendly in either lineups or photo ID sessions uh, to ensure that there are, you know, uh, filler photos, to ensure that these are videotaped. This is now the law in North Carolina, uh, to ensure that they're run in such a way that the uh, person doing the investigation doesn't have uh, uh, subtly influence uh, uh, the policy. So these are, I think, two uh, doable reforms. No honest prosecutor could, could oppose uh, such uh, reforms that are, are positive legacies from the case. The third possible legacy is that, you know, there, this was a case with very few heroes. Um, but one of the heroes was Lane Williamson, the, the chair of, of the Disciplinary Commission, and more broadly, the state bar. And the state bar's willingness uh, to intervene in this case, it was a very risky maneuver. The vote was in the grievance committee was eight to eight um, to charge Nifong with ethics violations immediately rather than to do a sealed um, charge that would be would uh, end the trial to occur after the lacrosse case uh, had been uh, had been tried. The eight to eight tiebreak was, was the, the vote was uh, tiebreaking vote was cast by the chair of, of the grievance uh, uh, committee. And I think this case does uh, prevent a model of how the bar can act at least in, in extreme cases of prosecutorial uh, misconduct. And other state bars might be more willing to, uh, you know, to step in, seeing what happened in, in North Carolina. But the two due process reforms that hopefully, you know, I think everyone in this case, involved in the case will, will support are, the, you know, open file discovery and, uh, and tightening, tightening res, uh, procedural uh, restrictions on, on lineups.
Yes. Uh, well, one question I have about the, you looked at various parts of the university's institution. One group of people you haven't mentioned are the board of trustees. Certainly in a corporation, if this had, a variety of events had occurred, I think the board of directors would insist on some outside investigation. Uh, and so I'm wondering what the role, if any, of the trustees was, and did you try to talk to them? Um, yeah, th this was a, a, a mystery for me. I've worked, um, you know, in, at, at CUNY, I've worked very closely with some members of the CUNY Board of Trustees. Um, we, have, we have an excellent Board of Trustees and a few, particularly uh, Jeff Weisenfeld, Benno Schmidt, who are quite active and, and have been positive uh, forces. I had assumed that there would be a similar thing at, uh, at Duke. That did not occur. Um, it didn't occur, I think, for, for a couple of reasons. Duke has a very large board. Um, it's a 37-member uh, board. 24 of the 37 are elected by two Methodist uh, denominations that were the uh, that helped uh, found uh, Duke. Um, the the power in the board essentially resides solely with the chairman uh, of the of the board. Chairman of the board at, at Duke uh, was a guy named Bob Steele, who is currently undersecretary of the Treasury. Um, he is everything uh, that the Group of 88 would despise in American society. Uh, um, former uh, Goldman Sachs uh, vice president, a multimillionaire many times over, a clearly conservative uh, a Republican, uh, someone you would not have expected to have gone along with the, uh, with the Group of 88's uh, crusade. Um, Steele, however, had been the key figure uh, to select the current president, uh, Dick Broadhead, um, which was a controversial uh, choice. Broadhead had been dean uh, of faculty at Yale. Um, uh, those of you who follow Ivy League sports know that Yale sports is just a little different than Duke sports uh, uh, is. It was an, it was an odd uh, choice, and Broadhead you know, clear, he's clearly out of his league as, as, uh, as Duke president. And so for Steele, this case was a very personal one. Um, and it was personal because it had to show that he had made the correct choice as president of, of Duke. Um, he made mistakes that I thought were, were inexplicable, steel, uh, that were, were inexplicable. For instance, he issued an email um, uh, to, to the other 36 members of, of the Board of Trustees saying that he and Broadhead had been in close contact with the families of the three falsely accused uh, players. Um, in fact, between the arrest of Reed Seligman and December 22nd, 2006, when Nifong dropped the rape charges, there was only one person in contact um, from Duke with the Seligman family. That was uh, Larry Mineta, uh, who sent Seligman a letter saying that he could not come onto the Duke campus unless he informed uh, the police. There had been no co contact. The Seligmans were very, very angry. This was one of the reasons why they, they sued Duke. Why, if you're the, pre the, the chairman of the board, you would issue a statement like that, which is a demonstrably false statement and is easily proven to be demonstrably false, is, is, is not clear. Um, Steele also had a tendency to, to sort of run off at the mouth. Um, Broadhead had said he canceled the lacrosse uh, season uh, as a way of, of uh, punishing the players uh, for the party and for uh, protecting them uh, from possible violence. Steele gave an interview in October of, of 2006 to The New Yorker saying that the real reason the, the 2006 season had been canceled was PR, that Duke couldn't afford to have photographs of the lacrosse players practicing. That obviously was the real reason, but you can't say that publicly. Um, so this, this was a case, I think, of, of basically incompetent leadership um, from, uh, from the trustees. And 
trustees are such an important balance. I mean, you know, to the extent that we have academic groupthink, which is a real problem, we need active trustees to balance at least some of the worst successes of the faculty. And in this case, for very different reasons, we had the trustees who were willing to go along uh, with the faculty. Was there any short-term effect on Duke in terms of admissions or money? Did you see anything like that? And then secondly, you said you expect in 10 years' time other departments to model, you know, that Duke was aggressive with the sort of postmodern uh, diversity in the humanities. Why isn't this the case to swing the pendulum back? Why, I mean, this is, everything you say is just so awful. Why isn't this the case that's going to have some backlash against that? Um, on the first question, there, there, there was some shift. It's, it's unclear whether the shift is going to be permanent. Um, the Duke did not suffer in terms of uh, the number of applications. It actually had the second highest uh, uh, number of applications in the history of the university for the class of 2011. The demographics, however, uh, of, of the admission class dramatically changed. Um, there was a plummeting of um, uh, white Northeasterners um, who uh, accepted admission uh, to Duke. And if you were the parent of a white Northeasterner, you might understand why you would not want to send your son or daughter uh, uh, to Duke. A dramatic increase in uh, African-American and Hispanic uh, admittees. Um, in terms of fundraising, um, Duke has, uh, has been, uh, opaque would be too generous a word to describe what, what they've done here. Um, the, there has been no discernible uh, uh, change in, uh, in uh, fundraising. However, it appears that what has happened is that um, large uh, foundations, especially the Duke Foundation, um, dramatically increased uh, their uh, donations to Duke in the past year to compensate for what appeared to have been a, a dramatic decrease uh, in donations, especially among parents of current Duke students. Um, it was a drop uh, from 41% of the 2005 um, Duke uh, donor pool came from parents. This most recent one was only 17%. Um, that's a very sharp uh, uh, decline. So the, 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 whether these are permanent changes, though, or a kind of temporary reaction, I think, is, is unclear. My guess, especially with the donations, is that in part it's going to be a temporary one because, you know, four years down the road, you'll have parents who have had no uh, response to this. Um, in terms of, of the, the future, yes. I mean, you would think in a, in a logical world there would be a, a reaction uh, and a backlash against this. Um, but the academy is many things. It is, it is not logical. There, there is no evidence that I've seen um, of even one um, uh, administration from an elite university that has used uh, the Duke case to reconsider the wisdom of diversity hiring patterns. And, you know, what Duke is doing is really, what Duke did is really a model uh, here. You, obviously, you, you can't have quotas in terms of hiring patterns. So what Duke did was to uh, dramatically redesign pedagogically um, in the hopes of attracting a diverse pool. I mean, you're more likely to get... If your goal is to get a black uh, uh, a lesbian, you're more likely to get that if you advertise in black lesbian literature than you are in, say, biochemistry. Um, so essentially what Duke did is achieve a more diverse faculty. It's clearly have a more diverse faculty now than they did 15 years ago um, at the expense of this pedagogical shift uh, in the humanities and social sciences uh, department. 
In a, you know, logically, you would see other administrations who would say there's a real downside to this. What you get are, you know, a, 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 an ext- a very extreme faculty. And particularly, I think the really troubling aspect of the Duke case is a faculty that see at least some of their students as the enemy simply because of the student's race or gender or athletic status. And that's a real problem. But I've seen no evidence um, that uh, administrators elsewhere have have taken uh, that kind of lesson from Duke. And clearly the Duke administrators uh, haven't. Thank you very much. Two short questions. And, and perhaps uh, Professor Barnett answered the first already. Why were there no whistleblowers in Nifong's office, right? And, and then the second question would be, uh, what's the status of the litigation against Duke and the professors? Thank you. Um, the question of why there weren't whistleblowers in Nifong's office is a disturbing one. Uh, you know, a, a fairly strong case could be made that at least two of the assistant district attorneys in his office also committed ethics violations because they were involved in minor ways in, uh, in the case. Um, part of the problem, I think, is a structural problem in North Carolina. Um, uh, DAs have, have basically absolute hiring and firing power. There are very few uh, protections. And the the demographics of the Durham DA's office are particularly interesting in this regard. Durham is is not not an area of choice uh, if you're going to be an assistant uh, DA. Uh, So it was a DA's office um, uh, under Nifong's leadership with Nifong, who was like in his mid-50s, who had been there for 27 years. Two Two other fairly senior people. And almost all the rest were under 35 or so. So people who were there for three years and then were going to uh, uh, move on. And so for most of them, their goal was they didn't want the bother that, uh, you know, of, of filing an ethics complaint against a DA, given that they were going to be out on the job market in a couple of years uh, anyway. Their institutional loyalty was to, was to themselves. This, it was particularly striking a former uh, assistant district attorney, uh, Kendra Montgomery uh, Blinn, who is now head of the North Carolina Actual Innocence uh, commission testified in Nifong's favor uh, at his uh, at his ethics uh, trial, which was was astonishing, and said that in her opinion he had handled uh, the case uh, the case appropriately. Um, so yes, there there should have been people who have, who have stood up, but but there were not. The second question. Oh, the status. Yes, um, the the three um, the three falsely accused players sued uh, Duke and uh, received a settlement that was widely rumored uh, to be between 17 and 19 million dollars. Um, that the the amount was never publicly revealed. Um, Three other uh, unindicted players have sued uh, Duke. Uh, the other 40 unindicted players may sue uh, Duke. Uh, uh, may n- that's, that's an uncertain question now, but it looks as if, uh, as if they're going to. Um, the three falsely accused uh, players have also sued the city of Durham um, and uh, the, the DNA uh, company. Um, they, uh, the, the city of Durham rejected uh, the, the settlement uh, offer, which was $30 million. Um, it, it is very likely, I think, that Durham will settle. Um, the, the depositions in the state bar uh, proceeding against Nifong were very limited in terms of interviewing Durham police officers, and they were unbelievably damning. Um, the, uh, the, the head uh, 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 cop in the case, a guy named Mark Gottlieb, um, produced this pristine 33-page uh, uh, typewritten uh, uh, memorandum four months after the interviews that actually took place, 
um, that filled in all kinds of holes in Nightbong's case. This, it, was, it was manufactured evidence. Um, in the depositions to the state bar, he was asked, well, what, where were his contemporaneous notes? And his claim was that he had kept contemporaneous notes on an eraser board in his office, and they had all but accidentally erased. Um, that's not the sort of thing that you want to go to trial with if you're the city of Durham. So my sense is that Durham will settle. Uh, they, they didn't settle uh, uh, now because there was an election in, in Durham in, in 2007. Um, Duke also settled with one uh, um, family of an unindicted uh, uh, player for grade retaliation in what was the most obvious case of grade retaliation I've ever seen. It was a professor who wrote that the, the uh, uh, lacrosse players were in her class, were uh, unindicted co-conspirators to the rape, uh, and then gave both of them F. Uh, Duke, uh, Duke settled. So, yeah, Duke is still going to be paying out uh, uh, more money. About 55 years ago, in the precursor to what has gone on in this, in the McCarthy era, McCarthy was harassing a witness at one of his hearings. And the lawyer, in what is now a well-known line, stood up and said, have you no shame? Where is that person now? Where is that person not only on the board of trustees? Where is that person in the law faculty on Duke that should be particularly attuned to this where is that person among the Alumni Association? Simply suing Duke isn't going to get it done because it's just institutional money. These foundations will provide it. And it wasn't per se the institution. It was deliberate decisions by individuals, by rotten apples in the barrel that made this whole thing possible. Nifong has been held accountable. He lost his job. He was disbarred. He went to jail for a day, and he's going to lose everything he owns in a civil suit. But these academic hoodlums have not been held accountable. As you point out, this is, this is a, a vision of the future, and it's a future that bodes ill, not just for academic freedom and the pursuit of truth, but for innocent individuals. Who is going to stand up and say, have you no shame? Yeah, th this, you know, th there are aspects of this case that I think are, you know, in some ways encouraging. I mean, the question that Randy Barnett was, was raising, that you do see procedural reforms that could come out of this case that will protect innocent people who are falsely charged in, in the future. But the academic side of this case is, is depressing. Um, the only person at Duke who I think has made this kind of have you no shame uh, uh, kind of statement is Jay Billis, um, former Duke uh, uh, basketball player, Duke law graduate, um, and a very influential Duke alumni who did a, you know, a powerful uh, uh, letter demanding that, that uh, Broadhead and Steele both uh, be fired. Uh, he submitted it to Duke magazine. They refused to run it. They put it on their website instead. Um, the only voice in the law school faculty during the case um, was a professor named Jim Coleman, um, former uh, chief counsel to the House Ethics Committee when the Democrats were in charge in the early 90s, liberal African-American, who stood up and was very courageous in criticizing Nifong. As soon as Nifong was disbarred, um, Coleman flipped on a dime uh, to uh, 
uh, criticize uh, people like me, um, who, uh, and I had a very good relationship with Coleman during the case, um, who were criticizing the Duke faculty. Um, and so the, the person who was really the voice of moral power in this, uh, in this case, um, you know, Coleman, has, has re retrenched entirely. And Coleman's new theory is that people who have criticized um, uh, the performance of the Duke faculty have deliberately refused and distorted the record because he claims uh, conservatives were actually more critical of the lacrosse players than the far left. There's no evidence of, of that. You know, it's, it's simply an out-and-out -out lie. Um, and so I think that there, there really is there's nothing on, on the, the, the case at, at, at Duke. You know, people who are at Duke who are, at, who are asking this. Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, uh, you know, who, who uh, had his own difficulties with academic freedom in, in uh, recent uh, months, uh, repeatedly told the mother of one of the lacrosse players that he was going to stand up uh, for due process um, in this case when the time was appropriate. Um, and he was just never able to find an appropriate time uh, uh, to, stand, uh, to stand up. And so I, I would agree. I think this, you know, this to me, this is the most troubling aspect of the case. It's not that there was the rush to judgment, which is troubling in and of, of itself, but that there seems to be this incredible unwillingness to recognize that this, this was a horrific injustice, a, a, you know, incredibly bad behavior among the faculty, which leads you to believe that it's going to occur again, and it's going to occur in cases that aren't like the lacrosse case that get a lot of publicity, cases that most people don't, uh, don't even, even notice. Thank you again.